following is a live podcast recorded at the Disruptor Series Live at TBWA Shite Day in New York. How many people on here are Moth fans? Let's make some noise. Yeah! I love this Moth, I gotta tell you, I'm addicted. 30 million downloads on iTunes last year. Think about that, 30 million. Uh, so without any further ado, I'm gonna introduce you uh, to our first storyteller who's gonna kick off the evening. Um, they are from The Moth, um, an author and senior, senior writer for Tablet Magazine, uh, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, uh, and most importantly, he has a PhD in video games, you know? So, see, who even knew you could be a doctor in video games? And now you're a storyteller. And uh, his podcast has been ranked as the top 50 podcast to listen to by The Guardian. It's called Unorthodox. Um, he's proud to be here and proud to be a professional storyteller. And he said to make sure to remind everybody that his seven-year-old self would be very proud of him right now. So I want everybody, uh, before we bring out the Q&A and the conversation, uh, to give a huge round of applause for our moth storyteller, Liel Leibovitz. Ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Um, I was born in Israel in the 1980s, and my father's mission in life was to make sure that his only son, me, grew up to be a real man. And so when I turned four, he would take me every Saturday to have shooting practice, which was funny because my arm was about half the size of his Smith & Wesson 45. And about two or three years later, when I was six or seven years old, my father would take advantage of Israel's surprisingly relaxed car rental insurance policies and rent out cars to give me these uh, impromptu driving lessons, which were terrifying because even sitting on his lap, I could barely reach the wheel. And every two or three weeks, there was a special treat. We would stop the car by the side of the road. And whether the car needed it or not, we would change a tire because my father believed that knowing how to change a car's tire was the epitome of manhood. Uh, and I really hated changing tires. And I, I really didn't like spending Saturdays with my dad, but he didn't care because he was inducting me into the international brotherhood of macho men. And every chance he got, we would go to the movies to watch his heroes, men like Sylvester Stallone or Chuck Norris or Burt Reynolds. And I liked these guys just fine. But my idol wasn't some Hollywood actor, but a real live person called the Motorcycle Bandit. This guy appeared in the scene shortly after my 12th birthday, robbing bank after bank after bank all over Israel. He was in and out of the bank in under 40 seconds. And he never left behind any trace of his real identity. He got so popular that Israel's most famous comedy TV show, which is sort of like the local equivalent of Saturday Night Live, dedicated an entire episode to the bandit, speculating in, in one bit that he never robbed any banks in Jerusalem because he simply didn't like that city. So imagine the reaction the next day when, in an apparent tribute to his favorite show, the bandit goes ahead and robs a single bank in Jerusalem. People went crazy. 
women who worked in banks would write their names and phone numbers on little pieces of paper. So if the sexy heartthrob robber happens to hit up their bank, maybe when he got off duty, he would see the note and give them a call. But the people who loved the bandit more than anyone were us teenage boys. For us, he was the biggest hero around. And on Purim, which is more or less the Jewish equivalent of Halloween, we all dressed up like him, with a leather jacket and a motorcycle helmet and a shiny big gun. So about a year and a half later, I'm 13 and a half, and I'm walking back home uh, from school, from the eighth grade, and I go home, and there's no one there, and I sort of mosey over to the kitchen to make myself a snack, when I hear a knock on the door. But it's not a tap, tap, tap. It's a boom, boom, boom. So I open the door, and there are three police officers standing there. And they're not making any eye contact. And they just stand there for about 30 seconds, not saying a word. And then finally, one looks up at me and says, son, we arrested your father not long ago with a motorcycle helmet and a leather jacket and a shiny big gun. And I thought, no way! You think my dad with the beer belly and the receding hairline and the terrible jokes, you think that guy's the motorcycle bandit? But in the hours and days and weeks that passed, I learned that he was. The story, as I soon found out, began two years earlier when my grandfather, um, who was one of Israel's wealthiest men, summoned my father, who was then 35 and a playboy, to have the talk. Now, if you've ever seen an episode of Dynasty or Dallas, you know the talk. It's when the rich man you know, calls his wayward son and says, it's time for you to grow up and get a job and do something with your life. And my father didn't like that one bit. So he stormed out of my grandfather's office and he hopped on his motorcycle, because of course, uh, and he rode over to the beach, and he's sitting there, and he's watching the sunset over the Mediterranean, and he's really thinking about what he wants to do with himself, who he wants to be. And he grew up in the 1960s, so he believed all these, uh, you know, sayings like, do what you love, or, you know, follow your heart. Uh, and so he decided to follow his heart, and his heart, uh, it turned out, led him to robbing banks. And he was good at it, he was great at it. He was an innovator, an inventor. He was the Elon Musk of the stick-up job. <laughs> Years later, I learned how he did it, and how he did it is incredible. He would rob the bank in under 40 seconds, run outside, hop on his motorcycle, ride around the corner, up a ramp he had custom built and into a van, where he would pause and like some mad philosopher king, contemplate the seminal existential question of bank robbing, which is of course, where is the last place you would ever look for a bank robber after the heist? A and the answer is, and now is the part any of you considering this line of work may want to pay attention, the answer is that the last place you would ever look for a bank robber is of course, the bank. So my father would take off his jacket and take off his helmet and tuck his gun under his shirt and calmly walk out of the van around the corner and into the bank, which was now a crime scene crawling with police officers. 
And one of them would inevitably walk up to my father and say, you can't be here, this is a crime scene, you have to leave. And my father would look at him in this dopey look and said, oh, my wife would kill me if I don't make this deposit. Can I please just put some money in my account? It will only take a minute. And the police officer would say, okay, go ahead, but you know, be quick about it. And my father would walk up to the teller and deposit the same cash he had robbed not three minutes earlier into his account. And this being the 1980s before computers, he had just made the cash virtually untraceable. It was a work of genius and he was really good at it and soon he became really famous. So of course, he became really cocky. He robbed a bank a day and then two banks a day and then two banks in two different cities. And one time, he was riding in a cab on his way to the airport when the urge struck. Uh, and so he told the cabbie, do you mind stopping by the side? It'll really only take me a minute. It literally really did only take a minute. He ran out, robbed the bank, came back into the cab, went to the airport, and flew over for an all-expenses-paid weekend in New York. And it was amazing. But you know how it ends. Eventually, he was arrested. And life got really weird for me and my mother. In part because uh, Israel, as you may have heard, is a small country surrounded by enemies. Uh, and as such, it has uh, a bunch of really particular ideas of what prison should be like. And one of these ideas is that prisoners ought to have one weekend a month off from prison to go back home and hang out with their families. And the logic here is that since uh, there's really only one airport and it's very secure, if you want to go ahead and try to escape to, say, Syria, be our guest. Uh, and so every uh, fourth weekend, I would show up at the prison Friday morning and pick my father up for a fun weekend about town. And those would be mortifying because people would walk up to us and say things like, yo, bandit, you cool. But I... I didn't think he was cool anymore. In fact, I didn't even think he was the bandit. He was my dad. My dad who had just done something so incredibly stupid that it landed him with a 20-year prison sentence. But even weirder than these weekends together were the weekends apart. Because all of a sudden, it would be Saturday, and there was nothing to do. There was no, there was no shooting practice. There was no changing tires, there's no Burt Reynolds. And so one afternoon on a Saturday, I was getting dressed to go out in the town. And, and this too, by the way, was a complete ordeal because when the police arrested my father, they searched our house and confiscated not only all of his pants and, and jackets and boots, but because we're more or less the same size, all of my clothes as well. So I picked the, one of the very few outfits I had, which is this ratty, purple tracksuit with the Batman symbol up front, which I figured the police probably thought no self-respecting bank robber would ever wear. And I put it on and I, I start kind of like walking the streets looking for a sign. And I literally got one. It was a sign above a theater for a, an all-male Japanese modern dance troupe. And I thought about it for maybe Seven seconds. And then I did something that would absolutely make my father disown me. I bought a ticket, and I went in. And I loved it. There on stage were these muscular, 
elegant, confident guys with their shirts off, and they weren't punching each other, and they didn't have knives, and they weren't riding Harley Davidsons. They were dancing, and they looked happy and full of meaning. And I thought to myself, if that's also another way of being a man, what other ways are there? And so began a two-decade-long process of trial and error of trying to figure out what kind of man I wanted to be. Now look, I'm not going to lie. Some of the things that I learned didn't surprise me that much. I really like bourbon. And I'm the kind of guy who could watch ESPN for maybe 17 or 18 hours a day. But other things shocked me. Like the fact that I like poetry. Or that bourbon being great, you know what else is really delicious? Rosé wine. <laughs> and even though I'm really good at changing tires, if I have a flat now, I'm calling AAA. <laughs> so I never shared any of these insights with my father, in part because he's not really the kind of guy for insights. But also in part because by the time he'd gotten out of prison, I had already become a man in full. It was too late for him to influence me or shape me in any way. And we still have a good relationship. He comes to visit uh, me where I live with my family here in New York. And on one of these recent visits, we're sitting in the living room, not talking, as men not talk. And my son, my three-year-old son, comes prancing out. Now, my son looks exactly like me, just as I look exactly like my father. And if there's one thing in the world that this boy loves more than anything, it's his older sister. And if there's one thing in the world his older sister loves more than anything, it's Disney princesses. So in walks the boy, dressed like Princess Anna from Frozen. <laughs> and I look at my son, who, by the way, looked amazing in this green taffeta and uh, black velvet bodice with lovely lacing. And I look at my father looking at my son. And I could tell that he's judging me. But you know what? I don't care. Because I realized then and there that by going to prison when he did, my father didn't just free me of all this macho nonsense. He also freed up my child to grow up and be the kind of boy who's happy and free to imagine himself being whatever he wants to be, even or particularly a pretty, pretty princess. And I'm just so grateful that instead of strutting along mindlessly like two tough guys, my son and I could both grow up and become real men. Thank you very much. Wow, what an act to follow. I know. <laughs> that was amazing. What a story. So uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, I think uh, we're going to try to unpack what you just saw because uh, what you were able to witness was something very special. What I discovered uh, early on is that there have been 44 million downloads of people listening to stories like that, which is really just incredible. So how the hell did you make this happen? I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, we, to start like, with a podcast, just because you brought that up, like the 44 million downloads, it's actually like, that's a year, which is crazy. And when, so I'll just tell you that when we started out, 
we started the podcast in sort of a modest way, like Dan Kennedy, who's now one of our regular podcast hosts, was like, guys, there's this thing called podcasting and you should totally do it. And we were like, what? Give the stories away for free? That's insane. We're a not-for-profit. Yeah, we're not an ad agency. <laughs> so, but we did it and you know, we launched a podcast and within the first couple of weeks we had a thousand subscribers and we were like, oh my God, we have a thousand, that blew our minds. It was like the most people who would have ever heard one story at once, because you know in the old days there'd be a show and there'd be 500 people, and maybe you would burn a CD of that show and there'd be 500 copies, and so the, and like a thousand people would have maybe heard the story. But you know, there was overlap. And so we were like, my God. And so it was interesting, like then the numbers jumped up pretty quickly and we could talk about how that happened. Um, and so it, it actually took us a while to catch up with it. Like for the first few years, I would be like, oh my God, two people wrote in and complained about that story. And everybody would be like, but Catherine, it's out of like 350,000, it's fine. <laughs> you know. But we were just so used to thinking in, on such a small scale. It took us a while to catch up with the scale. It, it started as what we just saw, which is yeah. a storyteller on a stage. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about the first one. Yeah, so the Moss origins, George Doss Green, who's a writer, he grew up on St. Simon's Island off the coast of Georgia. And he and his friends would have these like long evenings on his friend Wanda Bullard's porch and they would drink Jack Daniels, as the story goes, and play poker and they would tell these long, kind of complicated, beautiful stories. So George moves to New York City and he talked about how he'd go to these parties, this is in the mid 90s, and he felt like everyone just talked in sound bites. He also would, he'll, if he were here, he would say, like when you were talking to someone, you felt like they were just waiting for you to stop talking so they could talk and they weren't really listening. So he's like, I wanna recreate that feeling of Wanda's porch. So in 1997, he invited 100 friends to his loft near Union Square, and he invited five people to each, like everyone would get to hold the floor for, I believe, 15 minutes. There wasn't really timing in the beginning, which immediately that became a thing. It's like to time everyone, so um, the time limit. And um, everyone had to just shut up and listen to that person who had the floor tell a story. And that was the very first night. And then the next moth, they moved to like a little downtown, um, I'm totally spacing the Lansky Lounge, like, which is no longer around, but they moved there. And then from there, it just kind of became this like, movable feast of like, stories that would like, go from place to place. And around that time, it was like around 2000, I moved to New York City. And the way it would work is like you would get like, a postcard in the mail, which I sometimes describe it as like, it would be beautifully designed but inexpensively produced. Because <laughs> some brilliant designer would design it for free for them because they love the moth and you would show up, there was no advance tickets, you would just show up and wait in line and fight your way in like an animal, and then you would like stand in heels for the entire show and be just happy to be one of the ones that got in. And so that's how it was, it was like this crazy like New York underground thing. Although, from the very beginning, these huge literary stars, because George is like very charming and all of his friends, and so they would get, you know, George Plimpton and Lewis Lapham and all these really fun people would come out, and I think that's part of how the wonder of it grew, is that you would go to a show and you would have you know, someone like George Plimpton on stage, but then the person who would steal the show sometimes would be like the person you've never even heard of who had some crazy story. And then, and that's how it built up. And so for a very long time, it was only the live shows. It, we didn't even really tour outside of New York much at all until 2006. And then the podcast started in 2008. Right. And that's what changed everything. I'm listening. <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot of talking. No, no, I'm listening. They're listening. Amazing. So now, though, it's podcasts, uh, Moth Radio Hour, second book, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, I mean, what's next? A theme park? I mean, where does this thing go? 
Well, it's been interesting. You know, in the beginning, it took us years, and people sometimes are like, wow, it blew up so quickly, but the truth is it took us years to figure out certain things. And so one of our philosophies is really deeply figure out how to do something in the right way, because once you've put that time in, then you can pop it out, and it will sometimes take off quickly because you know how to do it. So our open mic story slam competitions were one of the things. They started out in New York City. There are these open mic nights where 10 people come. Everyone puts their name in the hat. The first 10 people are picked. Who are picked get to tell a five-minute story, and they're sort of like lovingly judged from the audience. And they started out in New York City, and it, the, we, we launched the first ones outside of New York in L.A., and it was like the very first night. It was like 40 people in the audience. There were no names in the hat. Like it was just a complete nightmare. And so over time, we figured out like we can't launch them without because not so long after that we got our radio show. And so we figured out you don't want to launch it without a public radio partner because just having them promote it like there was no money changing hands, but just having the public radio station that brought in the right crowd. And um, you, like we figured out what personality type you need in a local producer who's going to be able to go out and be warm and kind of bring in the right in the local community. And so we figured out how to do it. And so then once we were able to figure that out, we went to where we can launch a night and sell out the first one, and which is also just nice for the storytellers because if you're right. going to come, you want like a big warm audience and not 20 people sitting there who are also in the hat hoping they get picked. So. Um, yeah, so that's one of our one of our things is like to figure out how to really do it. It was the same thing where it took. Now we do forty shows a year around the world for our main stage, but it took us two or three years to really figure out what is like. I hate to use words like, but like the formula of how do you tour the main stage, and we experimented with like taking five great people from New York and taking them all around. Mm -hmm. But what we found is that local audience didn't respond to these New Yorkers who just showed up like and we were supposed to listen to them. So what we've discovered is like you want to, you can bring in two or three people, but you always want to invest the time, and it's very time-consuming to find two or three locals to be in the show because then it just has suddenly a local feel, and it's, it's a very different experience for that live audience. And that's probably why we do 40 shows a year and not 150 because it's much more time-consuming to do it that way. But what we found is that like compared to like the slams, the main stage is just not as scalable if you want to keep the authenticity. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, that's a little bit on uh, kind of how the thing comes about. Uh, one of the things I, I wanted to unpack for for our audience here is what what just happened with with what we just heard. What makes a good story, and specifically, what makes a good moth story? So, for moth stories, one of the things we always look for that I think def definitely like separates like a moth story from like an essay or a talk, a TED talk is that we always look for stories in which there's some shift, like some moment of change in the storyteller as a result of the events. Because you can often get up and you can just tell some rompy, crazy, funny story about something that happened. And it doesn't mean like, I honestly think we went through a period where the stories were a little wrapped up in a bow. Like we got a little after school special. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, you know, mm -hmm. like too much, we made fun of ourselves. People were making fun of us. The Guardian, when they reviewed their first book, they were like, and everything's a little neatly wrapped up. And we're like, God, that's kind of true. Like we're taking the note. They're just um, bitter at the Guardian because <laughs> they didn't come up with the idea. No, but, it, but still trying to sell we're newspapers. Like, it's maybe a good company. I don't know. It was maybe a good note. Um, so, it, so it doesn't have to be some huge shift, but like if there's just a little moment of reflection, because um, also it it really affects the stories you tell because you want to tell like if you're going to go on stage of the moth. Not that many people tell that many stories. I mean, at most, even like the people who are total regulars for us might tell one story every three or four years. So why is it that this is the story you want to tell right now? And so that helps you like hone in on what story it is that you might want to tell. But transformations, there has to yeah. be some 
transformation. We definitely look for that, even in like a really small story. And again, it can be a small transformation. It doesn't have to be, you know, like, like we, I think I made it literally on the radio hour that I just recorded with Liel's story. You know, your dad did not have to rob a bank for you to get to tell him off story. <laughs> um, so That's good, so there's hope for some of us. Exactly. That was amazing. Um, no, that, that's, that's really interesting. And do you feel, uh, something that we talked about earlier, or you guys were talking, I overheard it, um, is that moth speakers, uh, a lot of them are writers, and moth is uh, actually helping them be better writers. Do you, do you find that's happening quite a bit? People tell us that, and that makes us feel good. I mean, it's funny, writers are like, if we have like one group of people most represented the moth is writers. But writers also struggle with a moth. We, you know, when to talk about that, like writers, they tend to want to memorize their story, and like they go out there, and what we find is if someone memorizes their story, it's like it's scary because they go out and they there's this tendency to do we call it head in the desk drawer syndrome. Like this is moth internal language, and it means that you're on stage and you're talking to an audience and you're trying to connect and you're telling your story, but you're actually kind of spaced out because what you're thinking about is not them or even how they're reacting to what you're saying. You're thinking about the sheet of paper you have in your purse that writes everything out, and you're like, now I'm to this paragraph, now I'm to this paragraph, and you're just rattling it through. That's also like the few times people have ever frozen on stage. It's always someone who memorized. How awkward is that? Very awkward. <laughs> like, do you have a good awkward I I'm happy to have only witnessed story? it twice. <laughs> and like, I should knock wood. It's like, man, there's no wood up here. Oh my God, that scares me. Um, but there's, um, it's We've been a while we'll since the last one. It's been a while since the last one. Um, yeah, I do, do you want to hear a story about someone who froze? Everyone yeah. always wants to hear that. Shot I told it on Freud. Locate we recently, so I feel like it's out now. Um, yeah, we had this storyteller who would actually have to say had told his story like at least five times. And this is back in the day when people didn't do that as much. So he really was one of our great raconteurs. It was just this amazing story about being a speechwriter for Bill Clinton. It was incredible. And um, what, one of the interesting things is like slight, like just being too confident is like one thing that can get you in trouble. And so everybody as he walked out, it's like, like it was yesterday, this was like 14 years ago, he leaned in and he patted me on the leg. He's like, Catherine, I can really feel I'm gonna nail this. And it's like, wait, come back, no. And he went up there, and um, at, in his defense, it was a very tough room. It was that, do you guys know, um, God, what is that giant art center in North Adams, Mass? You know, that, it's gorgeous. Mass Mocha. So at Mass Mocha, it's January. It's like literally negative five degrees outside. It's cold even by their standards. In this vast warehouse, there's like a giant moat between the audience, like 70-foot ceilings. And we'd actually never agree to do a moth in a room like this now. We know, you know things we learned about how to tour. Um, it was like a really cold room, and there was like, it turned out the whole crowd, they were all museum curators who were there for a convention, which, anyway. Praying for it, George Plimpton to yeah, show up. It was very difficult. It was a little bit, it was a tough audience, I'll just say that. So he went out, and he just got really nervous and completely forgot his story. And he said, I'm so sorry, and just ran off stage and left the room. <laughs> and like, it was like this football field-sized room. Ultimately, Jonathan Ames, you guys know him, a hilarious writer, he was in the show, and he was like, I can go tell the Harry Call story, which is a story he told like 1,000 times because he was a regular host. And he ran up there and told this rollicking and unexpected like second story. He'd already gone on, and they loved him. But I have to say to his credit, the storyteller, like I went off to make sure he was not you know, slitting his wrists in the back room. And he was like, so, but in the second half, he came back out, walked up to the mic, and began his story where he'd left off with, so as I was saying, <laughs> and finished the story. <laughs> Very good.
Yeah. Very good. I think his next moth could be when he failed at moth. Totally. That could be really I actually tried to get him. We just did a 20th anniversary party. We did these little one-minute stories about behind the scenes, and I tried to get him to, to come tell that story with me, but he was out of town. <laughs> that would have been really good. So uh, interestingly enough, uh, as, as you talk about these people telling their stories, is there a process that you go through? Like, you know, like how do you, how do you become a mother? Yeah, so especially on our main stage, which is our series where we invite five people, you know, from all walks of life to come tell a 10 minute story. For our main stage series, the storytellers all work with one of our directors. So it used to be unbelievably only me directing like 14 shows a year in New York, but thank God, like partly so I could have a baby and partly also to just expand creatively where we were going. We now have like five to seven directors who like help choose the stories and then spend hours, sometimes and hours, working with the people to develop their stories. And then, so literally, like, does someone walk into a room, like in a casting call, you're at a desk? No, it's not like that at all. It's Damn. much more warm. I, <laughs> I mean, sometimes we meet people at the slams. You know, like, people can tell an amazing slam story. It also could be like, somebody will tell a story that doesn't quite land, but we'll be like, that's interesting. I want to hear more about that. And then we'll, so somebody will call them up. Is kind of your that's like, like the open like mic triple A ball. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's a good one. We give yeah. them a little direction or whatever. Exactly. Like there might be someone like where we're like, if he had just had more time to explain X, like let's call him and see what X is and if that's interesting. Mm. And because you're on the main stage, you have a little bit more time. Like the slams, you have like five, six minutes. And the main stage is more like, yeah, you know, eleven, twelve. So, um, yeah, so we work with them on their stories. And so, like, I mean, I give the example of Liel, who was just up. So I actually met him because I was, like, the, I know you don't call it the shiksa of the week, but the Gentile of the no, week. No, no, I do. On his, like, unorthodox, which is amazing. And I was, like, telling this kind of wacky story about my southern family, and Liel was on the other end. Like, we were, we were having a moment, the two of us. And I was like, I think that guy, you know, this is how it happens sometimes. Like, I think there's something, that guy across the table, there's something to him. Like, like the, he's got something. And so, I mean, it's really rare that I'm like, tell me what's the biggest story of your life. And he's like, well, my dad was you know, the most famous bank robber in Israel's history. That almost never happens even in my life. I mean, that is like moth lottery gold. Maybe you have like a moth <laughs> radar. Like you just know, like there's um, gold over there. Yeah. But then, you know, we got on that first phone call. Like I said, we, and we talked to the phone like over an hour. I just kind of pulled the whole story out and what it was really about. At one point, the first telling, there was a whole different ending that involved like your, your, the various, all these girls throwing themselves at Lee Hill afterwards and him trying to figure out what's real and his relationship with his awesome girlfriend who kind of helped him stay sane. But in the end, we were like, it feels like, it, like, it felt like we were maybe starting a second story. I mean, it mm. was great, but we're like, what if we lopped that off and then had a little bit more time to really dig in to his relationship with his father? So we actually changed it from the first telling to the second telling. A little, like it's, it's rare that they have that big a dramatic change between, mm. but we lopped off like maybe like the last, would you say like the last quarter? And then like, and then it just like allowed the rest of it. And he came up with that beautiful scene with his son yeah. at the end. And then there, there was just like more time to let the story breathe and connect the dots. Mm. And like, it's like things like the hilarious thing with like the SNL of Israel and like just like some details that I feel like make the story so great. There was time for that. And, and I think what's really powerful, and we saw tonight, you see it online with a number of these stories, is that I don't know how many times you've told that story, but it doesn't feel canned. What's, yeah, so there, how does that happen? Well, it's tricky. Um, I mean, it's like the, the going back to why we don't want people to memorize is because when you memorize, it can get really canned. Mm. Um, and so... It, it, like we try to encourage people to like memorize bullet points instead. 
And you know, one of the things I sometimes say to a storyteller is if they're nervous, I'm like, just think of like, there's only a few points really, even in a 10, 12 minute story, that if you miss, it's gonna be a total disaster. It's like, you're not gonna say that your dad raised you in this kind of crazy way. Um, you're not gonna forget to say that you found out your dad was a bank robber. <laughs> and you're not gonna forget that that allowed you to break away. And everything in between is a detail. And so, because what happens is people get so hung up on, this is what happens to writers in a bat when they don't do well, is that they get so hung up, like Liel never did this, so I'm not trying to make an example of him, but it's like where you get so obsessed with every beautiful little sentence and every perfect way you say it, and then you're so obsessed with that that it prevents you from actually going out and connect with a live audience, um, which is like the thing that is like the most important of all, is to just go out and like look out and try to have an authentic moment with the crowd. Um, and so, yeah, we really push them not to do it. Like there's this um, Japanese term, wabi-sabi, mm. do you know that term? It sort of means like beauty and imperfection. You're all kind of visual people, I feel like, if you work here, probably, so you probably already know that. But it's like the beauty of your grandmother's antique table you inherited versus one you just bought at Ikea and assembled. <laughs> and so I always think that the best monasteries have a little bit of wabi-sabi. Mm. Um, like, like, like we always say, people are so afraid that they'll forget a part of their story, but we're like, no, if you drop a chunk and then have to go back, oh, what I meant to say and pick it all up, like the audience will only love you more because mm -hmm. they just want you to be real. Sometimes reporters will be like, what's the number one quality of a great mom storyteller? And they expect me to say like, you know, the person who made this great speech at their high school graduation. Totally not, it's vulnerability. Mm. It's their willingness to be vulnerable and be honest, and like make themselves maybe the butt of the joke and just be really honest about their own failings. Well, yeah, and just on that point, there's a, I don't know if you guys know this story that uh, Andy Borowitz told. Uh, he wasn't the butt of his joke. The col his colon was the butt of the joke. Yeah, but he definitely made fun of him. He really went there. Yeah, I mean, big time. Yeah, that was that was like a, that was like I would just dub that like hashtag TMI, but it was good. Yeah, it, I feel like it walked up to it, but the way he handled the material, and partly because he's so funny. Yeah, because he's a genius. Yeah, he was able to make <laughs> it work. That was an interesting story because you know he was our regular host when that happened. Oh yeah, and um, so we sort of lived that story with him. Like I actually went to see. Andy in the hospital, and he was already laughing and having framing, but like, it was like scary you know, seeing him lie there and there in the hospital bed, this man who's mm. usually just so in command. And so it was interesting, and so about a year after it happened, you know, he, he was like, because he had always just told very funny stories, like you know, his pre previous stories were about like, writing for the facts of life and wacky hijinks and you know, and so, but he like, but then he really went there, and if like, that's the story of all the stories he's told, and he's told many wonderful ones that, routinely like like lands the most for people that like and it's because I think he really you know opened himself up yeah I mean it's a crazy story if you don't know it. you should listen to it Andy Borowitz he uh, uh, has this colon issue it forms this giant knot and it really kind of messes with him obviously because it's his colon and, and you need that but the way he tells it is really yeah. just incredible he was just like engaged right to this beautiful young girl he'd met and so it's just like Rrr. yeah so uh, because you brought up your, your Shiksa background. Uh, so you're from Alabama? Yes, rural Excellent. Alabama. Yeah, that's like a Shiksa ground zero. God knows. Um, <laughs> and interestingly enough, uh, we were talking before, so uh, writer Harper Lee was from there. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't a writer, but Zelda Fitzgerald, who of course is the muse for F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, what, what was it like growing up in Alabama? I was, I mean, definitely surrounded by storytellers. You know, like I grew up with like my grandmothers telling like stories and like, it's funny, people sometimes ask me, 
don't you get bored having people tell the same stories to you over and over? But I was always that little kid that was like, tell me the one where you dropped the bassinet and make your baby sister roll down the hill. Like, that's an example from my grandmother. But it's those kind of stories. Right. It's not like, oh, we went to the mall in Calabasas. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, these are good. Exactly. But yeah, I feel like there's just such a rich history there. Um, yeah, I, do you, I have a crazy story. Do you want to hear my Harper Lee story? Yeah, I have a story about her. I actually met her when I was a little girl. She actually came to my hometown um, when I was a little girl, when I was around eight years old. And um, she came to my town to research what was meant to be her next book. And um, my mother invite, just like called her up and invited her over to have lunch at her house. And then while, so I had lunch with her and my mom. And then my mom invited her to like talk at like the women's, book club or whatever and she did it years later i would not ever be able to book her for the moth but mama managed to book her for like the alexander city alabama ladies library you know luncheon in like 1975 or whatever it was 76 uh, so um but so then when i was 14 i read to kill mockingbird in school and i was in what i now refer to as my surly teen phase <laughs> so i was like mama you just invited Harper Lee over for lunch. And I was like already like this little literary snot. And so I was like, don't you know she had just won the Pulitzer Prize? You know, it was horrible. And Mama was like, I actually wrote about this in the intro to the Monstrous book. Mama was like, well, I don't know about that, but she's new in town and doesn't know anybody. And it's important to get to know your neighbors. Which it's, I was like, yeah. By the way, I think you should still talk <laughs> like that here in New York. I think, I think. A few more of these drinks, and I definitely will. Where's my Uber? Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So it's funny, but but I feel like what it, the reason I wrote about it in the Moss first book is because I feel like Mom's whole thing of like, you know, she would always be like, you have to get, to, pay attention to who's standing in line behind you in the grocery store, because she, like, I think the way Mama would say it is because you never know what's been going on with them. And I feel like that's very moth. You know, it's all about like a you know, part of you know, when we tell stories, when we do the moth, the, uh, the storytellers sit out in the audience and they, this is like something we do that's very different from a lot of theater. And they get up and take the stage. And the idea is that, that this is a story from your community. Mm. And any one of you, you might be in the audience tonight, but tomorrow you could be the one telling the story. Or hopefully tomorrow, tonight after you know, having drinks after the show. I feel like this is like Starbucks dream, like they would like to do a, a moth <laughs> in Starbucks, so it's the community and we're drinking our, you know, ventis too late at night, I don't know, it seems like it would work. Now you're a non-for-profit, I mean, uh, we're an ad agency, so let's just ask, you know, one crass mercantile question, I mean, have you had sponsors before? We definitely have, like, we've had various sponsors over the year, um, we had a whiskey sponsor for a couple of years, which is a very good fit for us. Mm. Um, yeah, and like, interestingly, like, the very first moth tour was paid for actually by TNT. The, um, it, it was, because their whole character is wanted, you know, they were doing right, that. Right. Um, and then actually it's funny, USA Networks then sponsored a second tour because they were doing Characters Unite, I think that's right, mm. which like is very moth, and so we went around the country with them. Um, so yeah, over the years, like, we've had numerous people sponsoring, it's like the podcast is frequently um, I think we're not so allowed to use the word sponsored. It's like they present. Mm. There's some sort of like, is there anyone for the IRS here? There's a specific language around it. Um, I could just feel my business partner, our executive director, being like, Mer. Um Yeah, so, but yeah, it's one of those things we have to be really careful with sponsors. Because mm. like in the early days when we were, I mean, so broke, I can't even, like you'd be like, should we pay the light bill or this bill? And, you know. Um, there were people who'd want to come in and, and like pay us to like do a show around a specific product. And one of the things I'm so relieved is that we always, at any cost, would not do that because I think it would have just brought down... Because you have integrity. 
Yeah, like the, I mean, I guess I'm in the room with the people who use this word, but the, the brand, you have to have, you know, you can't be... Yeah, it can't be like Cottonelle brings you the moth. Right. Although maybe if you've I got don't know. some I think tears... Cottonelle's maybe, not maybe nearly as bad as some maybe other that works. things. Maybe that that, yeah. Um, By the way, we could probably make any brand work. That's what we do for a living. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, we try to um, find sponsors that are a good fit for us, you know, because it's also just so much better for them. Right. Um, like if you can come up, like to this day, half the moth community drinks Hendrix Gin because you know they're so fun. You have used their ads, they're British and so hilarious. And they sponsored us for two or three years, like back when we were pretty small. And people, they, their gin is truly delicious. It's like cucumber flavored. Right. And so to this day, I will go to people's house and they have Hendrix. So I think it really, because um, like the moth, it, it, I mean, it's so much bigger now, but it's still a fairly, it's a tight community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and loyal, interesting. Well, before I ask one last question, are there any questions out in the audience for Catherine, for Leo? Thank you. Um, so what has been like the oldest person to present at the moth and the youngest person? And what may have been the commonality between those two individuals? And that's such an interesting question. We think so much about this. Like, you know, we think a lot about diversity, but we say diversity, we, you know, we mean racial diversity, we mean men and women, but age is a huge thing for us. Um, and so that's actually a really good question, who's the oldest, but we definitely every year have two or three people who are in their 80s and 90s, because it's something we chase. We spend a long time chasing down a lot of people from World War II. I know one of our oldest storytellers just died, may she rest in peace, at 101. And she was one of the women pilots from World War II. Do you Obviously. know this, how there are all these yeah, women yeah. who like, they wouldn't send them into battle, but they trained the men. And a lot of them died. Like, they mm. put their lives on the line, and they were amazing pilots. And so she, we did this World War II night. Mm. And so she was in the show. She was at the time, I think, 98. And there was a guy in the show who was a soldier who still fit into his uniform and wore his uniform wow. to the show, which is unbelievable. And he was 18 years old, and the guy who was on the front of the boat the very first boats jumping off at D-Day. Mm. And so one of the hilarious things, it was like he kept hitting on her. <laughs> we were like, relax, tiger. You know, like it was so funny. He was like, yeah, she's quite the, an older woman. And we're like, I guess she is. And he was like 78. Or, um, yeah, they were so much fun. But like, it was an amazing this show. This moth brought to you by Viagra. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but like we love trying to find these stories. We have a couple of, we have a guy, we have a World War II pilot, another one from D-Day who actually ran out of gas over the Atlantic and land and managed to land the plane and like save a lot of people. He's currently like going around with us. Um, yeah, and then the, for the youngest, it's funny that you asked that because we have a wonderful high school story slam program and actually part of why I'm here tonight is Walt's daughter, Isabel, who might have been, she may be the youngest person to ever tell a story in the main stage. Walt, do you, do you remember how old she was? Was she 15? I think that she may be the youngest main stage storyteller. There might have been another 15-year-old, but I don't think we've had 14 on the main stage. We generally don't work with kids until they're about 14, because we just find like- that's when it gets interesting. What's also, yeah. And it's also like, we'll, we can never work with every single kid that we would want to work with. And we find that just what we do has much more impact when they get a little older. Mm. Yeah, so it's funny that Isabel might, is probably the youngest. Wow. She's amazing, by the way. You should like go look up her story. Hi, do you have any tips for how long stories should last? Is there a formula? I know you don't like that word, but um, or a sweet spot. I mean, of course, it obviously depends on the context, yeah. but like, there's like certain moth links that work pretty well. So our slams definitely five, six minutes is, is, works really well. Um, 
on the main stage, we find that when stories get past, that most stories, when you get them past 12, 13 minutes, that they start to feel long, like that there's something that you could trim out. I mean, there's like, we've had like few stories, like um, Mike Massimino was an astronaut who did a story about trying to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. So I guess if you're Mike Massimino, several of the World War II people went a little long, but nobody was gonna play them off stage. Right. <laughs> uh, it's like, hmm, <laughs> yeah. Um, but we find that, that's a, that that length, that like 10 to 12 minutes is a very sweet spot, um, yeah. And so, but there's also like, there's a, you can tell an interesting story in three minutes. That's a format that occasionally, like if I'm gonna do an intro to something where I'm speaking about three minutes is good. And our founder, George, for a long time had this whole second series where people were telling one minute stories. And that's actually really interesting. They're trying to tell us, it's hard to tell a solid story in one minute, but it's fun. Yeah, we gotta tell stories now in six seconds. So, oh, wow. your lovely, yeah. <laughs> loungy minute, no problem. <laughs> What else? Any other questions? Up, up on the upper deck, Lucas, Spain. Do you ever corroborate the details of the story? Have you ever had problems with people? <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you from our legal department. <laughs> yeah, we've... Okay, so our standard one-liner about it, but then I'll actually elaborate, was, is that we cannot afford the New Yorker's fact-checking department. Um, we wish that we could in a way, although then again, so one of the things, that, do you guys know that there was sort of an infamous incident with Mike Daisy, do you guys, he was a storyteller who does a lot of one-man shows and he told a story on This American Life and it came out that some of the parts weren't true and they did a big retraction episode. In my world, it was like a very big deal. And um, so after that, we started putting on the radio, stories are true as remembered by the storytellers because memory is so tricky. But I will tell you this, I, you can't be a director at The Moth and not have a pretty good instinct about people. And if any of us start, we sometimes will, like, it's like the unreliable narrator. Like, if things seem too pat, and if we can't, like, it's also like, you know, how did you feel when your niece punched you in the face? And you can just, your, their niece never punched them in the face. Like, you just really get, we actually won't proceed with that person. We've actually had a couple of incidents where we put a story on the radio, and it turned out afterwards it wasn't true. One heartbreak was a Vietnam vet did a story, and all the vets that were actually in the, the thing that he said, called, and we're like, we don't know that guy, that's totally made up. It was so heartbreaking. We actually think that he was suffering from mental illness and really believed it. Maybe he can run for office. <laughs> but we pulled his story off the radio. Very good. Any other <laughs> questions before I ask a last question of Catherine Burns? Any other last mothy questions? All right, very good, thank you everyone. Um, thank you guys. <laughs> uh, so I think there are some potential moth tellers out here. Uh, what's one piece of advice or just some advice for somebody who wants to be a, a moth storyteller? So what I said earlier about not memorizing your story, there's two exceptions. Exception one, memorize your first line. Maybe your first one or two, why? Because you're gonna be nervous, right? People always talk about how Many people have told me that as they're walking from the stage introduced to the mic, they're thinking, I hate the moth, I hate Catherine, why did I agree to do this? I hate myself, I hate every choice that led me here. <laughs> so in that moment of fright, <laughs> you, I mean, Mike Massimino, our, our, we think of him as our astronaut, who's been to space like seven times, said that the moth is the scariest thing he's ever done. So like, oh, but that's so amazing too. And so you want to know where you're gonna start. 
like you want to be able to start right in because what's going to happen is that any storytelling audience, not just the moth, the people who come out for live storytelling, they're warm. They want to hear from you. And so a couple of sentences in, they're going to just pick you up with their energy and then you'll be off and it'll be fine. But so that you just want to know exactly where to start. And then we find that the, so the, so then the second time is you want to memorize your last line. And no matter I mean, you could be George Plimpton. I don't know if actually he literally did this, but like the greatest raconteurs, they'll tell this brilliant story. The roof is lifted. Everyone's so happy. And they get to the end and they'll say, well, I guess that's my story. And just kind of wander off stage. <laughs> no, come back. And so one of the things we say to them is like, you want to land your last line like a gymnast, like jumping off the thing and like boom. And so it's because, it, so that's another thing. It, it can just build up your confidence too at the end because when you get towards the end, you want to just like building, 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 boom, versus like just fading out at the end. So that's like, that's some advice. Yeah. I mean, Excellent. yeah, that's like, that's, that, one's, that one will get you going. All right, good. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Leo, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Moth is really disrupting the world and we, uh, we're big fans and we appreciate it. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shiat Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiatny.tumblr.com.